Once I hated this city, now it can't get me down. Slushy, humid, and gritty, what a pretty town. What thought I could be duller, more depressing, less gay. Now my favorite color is gray. A wall of rain as it turns to sleet. The lack of sun on a one-way street. I love the grime all the time. And what more do I need? My window pane has a lovely view. An inch of sky and a fly or two. Why, I can see half a tree. And what more do I need? The dust is thick and it's falling. It simply can't be excused. In winter, even the falling snow looks Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 18th, 2024. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felish and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Peter, you know... Yeah. (laughs) 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 I, I, I wasn't sure... Uh, how, how many uh, variations there were on this, but how does one spell Felicia? <laughs> oh, you saw her on Facebook when I put up. Uh, I, I, yeah. I, 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 <clears throat> Peter, you you did go viral. You did go viral there on Facebook. So, I mean, I, I can't even imagine. It's not even like not even one Starbucks cup there. I don't even know you to drink coffee. And but yet you have so many variations of how people have destroyed your last name. Well, the name is the problem after all i mean it's an impossible last name but the thing is that um in 1986 when i was on a press trip uh, to scotland and um they gave me an envelope saying peter finchio f-i-n-c-h-i-o <laughs> i thought you know i gotta start keeping these you know then and um so so far i have 67 different misspellings unique misspelling i don't mean f-e-l-i-c-i-a which comes up all the time i don't mean that at all i mean once um, a misspelling is established that goes on the um, collage that I have. Mm. And um, so uh, two of them, by the way, spell my last name, F-I-L-I-C-H-I-A, which is correct, but it's Robert and Joseph, you know, I mean, they got the first <laughs> name wrong, you know, so mm. <laughs> Um, my favorite is Patricia Felicia, um, and they misspelled the last name. But uh, when I was going with a, a, a girl named Patricia in, in in high school, and I pointed out if we got married, she'd be Patricia Felicia. That was really the end of it. We never, you know, <laughs> we didn't break up right then and there, but the, the bloom was off the rose. So anyway, yes. Uh, so if you're on Facebook, you may have run into that. Um, it happened because somebody spelled uh, my name out in, in a certain way that I thought I'd put that up. But wow. Um, a lot of people really responded to it, for better or worse. <laughs> I just wasn't clear. Are, are most of those from envelopes? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 Well, you um, had some ticket stubs in there. You had a lot of yes, ticket stubs. Yeah. And um, airline. Um, uh, yeah. It, which is really, you know, when you get your boarding pass and your name is spelled, you, you worry, you know, that um, right. there's going to be a Well, problem. only these days. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed. You know, so, uh, but yeah, they do. They do add up. <sighs> Yeah, you know, the name is the problem, but the play is the thing. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He is the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. And Michael, the uh, uh, the excitement yet grows for March 7th. <laughs> Coming up at 54 Below, where 54 loves cast albums. Michael, are you going to be doing 54 different cast albums? No, uh, not quite. No. <laughs> okay. Because there's another sort of uh, 54 meme that's 54 at 54. That uh, it's no, it's a different show that's happening at 54 oh. Below. And I was like, so clever. Such a yeah. Show. Yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're just going to uh, sing songs from our favorite cast albums. We got Karen Akers coming. Uh, to do her songs from nine. Um, and we picked nine because she's also going to be at 54 very soon for um, an evening of Grand Hotel. Um, mm, yeah, you know, that's right. Is it next Monday? Reunion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she'll be, <laughs> so those are her two big Broadway shows. So she'll be very well represented at 54 um, in the upcoming weeks. And, you know, she's a, such a wonderful artist that. Uh, uh, it's really great to have her. We're very happy with that. And we have Robbie Roselle. We have Gerard Alessandrini and Christine Petty. Um, and I just, uh, um, we've all oh, recently added Ben Jones and Megan Sterner to our cast. Uh, so I think it's going to be fun. And Charles Kirsch, as I mentioned, is um, going to be co-hosting with me. And I think we're going to, do a number <laughs> and i think it's going to be impossible from forum ah. <laughs> um, which i thought might be cute uh hopefully I, we'll you know be. michael i i think that you and charles kirsch should do you're nothing without me <laughs> <laughs> that's always the possibility <laughs> i think you two are the stein and stone yeah <laughs> absolutely <laughs> I was going to say you should do the last 54 years of uh, recordings, but you're actually doing the last 80 years worth well, of we, uh, cast recordings. Yeah, I mean, we pretty much dated from uh, 1943, Oklahoma. There was there were one or two before that. Um, Cradle Will Rock had a sort of a cast album, mm -hmm. but we're not doing anything from Cradle Will Rock anyway. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we're just picking and choosing some of our... Uh, some of our favorites. I uh, uh, one of the things uh, Jay Aubrey Jones is going to be singing the Olive Tree from Kismet, and the thing that's interesting about Kismet, as many theater historians know, is that it opened during a newspaper strike. Uh, so, and actually, then I think when uh, the strike ended, the reviews that it got after that were not that great. But um, audiences had already discovered the show by hearing the song sung on uh you know on the radio and also I, i'm not sure if the i guess maybe the cast album was out by then uh and so uh it became a big hit regardless of the fact that the reviews were not stellar um so that's a little interesting footnote to the the cast album history there by the way layman engel told me that um one of the reasons Christmas succeeded is because they put ads on tv that mm. newfangled invention just mm. talking heads he said helen hayes he, he believed sold a lot of tickets she went on and said i love kismet blah 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 and here's what's interesting i mean that was 53 and TV commercials really didn't find their way until 72 with Pippin. Right. Uh, and so it's so interesting that 
nobody took advantage of that for 19 years, saying, wow, uh, talking heads sold tickets. Uh, let's do that. I mean, it's just amazing that that one-off just didn't take. I'm very surprised. Yeah, that really is interesting. So uh, 54 Loves Cast Albums, the second edition is uh, March 7th, 2024. Uh, on And you can get more information and tickets on the 54 Below website. We have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, we are recording on Sunday morning on February 18th. But last night on Saturday evening, the 17th, uh, Broadway uh, dimmed their lights in memorial uh, to Cheetah Rivera. So, Michael, you were there. Yeah, I went with some friends and we decided to stand in front of the Imperial. We thought 45th Street would be the best mm. place to be just because there were more theaters there than any than anywhere else. Um, it didn't go as smoothly as some of the past ones. In fact, uh, when we when we got there, the Imperial and the music box, they both have those LED marquees. Mm-hmm. And so they both had uh, Cheetah's image up as we got there at like 740 uh, with the dimming schedule for 745. Um, but then the one on the Imperial went out, uh, the LED marquee went out early. Uh, and then when the, uh, when the dimming happened, which is actually not a dimming, it's all of the lights are just shut off. Uh, like as if on a toggle uh-huh. switch, mm-hmm. um, it, they didn't happen simultaneously, which uh, is, is hard to completely coordinate. Um, but, uh, it seemed like the music box actually became the center, p- uh, piece of the, uh, of the memorial because that, that beautiful LED tribute with a really, really fun photo of Cheetah stayed on. And so that's what people were focusing on. And so there was, uh, the moment of silence and then there was applause and then someone um this was wonderful someone in uh one of the theaters across the street um had uh, that theater has uh like a fire escape with little balconies on yeah, it yeah, you know yeah. outside mm-hmm. and so uh some of those uh, some of those cast members had come out to watch and then as soon as the lights came back on. Somebody p- played all that jazz on a, <laughs> on a, uh, you know, on a some kind of a stereo uh, mm. into into the th- into the street, um, and that was really wonderful. Uh, so it was a beautiful moment for Cheetah. To, uh, very cold night, but it was wonderful to see um, some of her fans and people who loved her there. So. Uh... Uh, Rob Johnson, who is uh, in our chat room right now, uh, took a video of it that I saw on Facebook, and I'll uh, link to it in the show notes. Oh, great. Uh, so you can check those things out. Peter, you got over to Irish Rep to see Aristocrats. I almost said Aristocats mm-hmm. again, but it's Aristocrats mm-hmm. at Irish Rep. So tell us about it. Oh, it's terrific. Um, it's terrific if you like Chekhovian-type plays, because this is really Brian Friel's Chekhovian masterpiece. Um, <clears throat> he really tried to get the mood uh, of people sitting around talking. Not very much happens, but um, not for a while. But at the end of the first act, something very dynamic happens. Here's what's going on. Um, <clears throat> where the family is all together, 
they're not usually all together. They're all grown people, and they've uh, been scattered to the winds, but they're all together because Claire is getting married. How wonderful. Isn't that great? Um, however, they have a very, very um, ill father, old and very infirm. And um, at the end of the first act, he dies. So suddenly, what turns out to be um, a funeral and uh, wasn't supposed to be, of course. It was supposed to be a, a wonderfully happy wedding. Um, but no, that's not going to happen. So um, we see people revealed here. The most amazing performance is done by Tom Holcomb, H-O-L-C-O-M-B, <clears throat> as Casimir. Yes, C-A-S-I-M-I-R. You would think that that would be a Russian name, perhaps, but uh, actually, this is an Irish family. <laughs> well, I, if you know Brian Friel, you know I don't even have to say that. But <laughs> anyway, he is magnificent as um, a, <clears throat> a nonstop talking um, individual who just goes on and on. And we find out as time goes on, this is a very strange expression, I'll grant you. He's a benign pathological liar. Um, he doesn't mean to lie in many situations. He really believes what he's saying when he says that as a child he remembers Yates hanging around the house. And eventually, uh, a person who's doing a story, um, Tom, <laughs> yes, the character's name is Tom, <clears throat> says, but Yates died two months before you were born, and he doesn't quite retract um, what he's saying. I mean, he, he's, he seems puzzled that that's the case. He truly believes that he remembers Yates when he was a kid. And Tom is very good in not wanting to embarrass him, saying, well, you know, there must have been so much talk about Yates when you were a kid that, you know, you just don't remember, you know, and you, you feel like you meant. He tries to get him off the hook. But there's a far more serious lie that he seems to be telling because he claims that he lives in Hamburg, that he's married with three children, but nobody has seen the wife and nobody has seen the children. And he does seem like a very closeted gay. <clears throat> he brings it up at one point, too, um, that um, that uh, it, he was a very odd child. But I don't mean homosexual. No, I don't mean that at all. Um, however, um, we have our doubts that that's the case. So um, equally magnificent um, is uh, Sarah Street playing Alice, uh, who's a sister, who's uh, quite the lush. And as time goes on, she will get drunker and drunker. And so in Vino Veritas, as we well know, Judith is the one who's been staying at home, taking care of the father. And of course, whatever this always happens in families, the person who takes who stays home and takes care of the infirm relative is the one who's the least appreciated, appreciated because people now expect that she's going to do that and she has to carry the football and that's all there is to it. Um, it's so sad. You know, I've seen it many, many times in families where the caretaker is not appreciated and the the other sibling who comes in from hundreds mm. of miles away for a visit you know is is celebrated ah here you are oh so good to see and the other person's taken for granted so we have that type of situation as well um so we also uh, have a townie um willie diver who indeed um, works um, here and there and uh, helps the family out. Um, and what's, he says he's got his finger on the pulse of what might happen. And we get the impression that he's going to turn out to be a very rich man because he has an idea for an invention that seems to be going very well. Okay. But the aristocrats <clears throat> uh, are on their way down, just as the people in the cherry orchard are. Uh, and that's what's very Jacobian about the piece. 
And also, the we do have a <laughs> an analogy with three sisters in the sense of <laughs> Judith, Alice, and Casimir. Uh, so, um, so we're talking about a very long play, I have to admit, and yet it's one of those plays where you really get to get know the people. They really get revealed very, very well. And uh, that's the skill of Brian Friel. And Charlotte Moore has directed perfectly, perfectly. No other word will do. So after all these years, one might expect that from Charlotte. She's been running the Irish Rep for a long, 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 long time. God love her for making this company happen, for making it thrive. I mean, really, how many theaters do you know closed down because they had to build a balcony um it's a tiny space but they built a balcony because they needed more seats (laughs) Mm -hmm. so as a result is that a symbol of success or what so again let me point out if if Chekhov doesn't speak to you and there are people who just don't respond to Chekhov and I understand that you might not like this play but if you do appreciate Chekhov and you want to see magnificent acting get over to 22nd street. You, you know, uh, the thing about Charlotte Moore is that, uh, she understands both sides of the business, not, not only the artistic uh, side of the business, uh-huh, uh-huh. but she, she cultivates relationships. Mm. Isn't that something, you know, and, and that is so important that I, I, I think that a lot of artistic directors miss the cultivation of relationships. Mm. Uh, you know, and whether it be, you know, a, uh, um, uh, a Matthew Broderick, I, I, you could see Matthew Broderick in this hundred seat theater, mm-hmm. uh, and, and tremendous other names as well as world-class directors and designers and, and writers. And, uh, so, I mean, it really, she understands both sides of the equation and, uh, and, and that has served Irish reps so, so well. Mm-hmm. It, it's really amazing. So, and, and they and, have managed to make the most of that somewhat odd space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, as, as Peter mentioned, uh, it's my favorite space with a big pole on the left. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, uh, Aristocrats at Irish Rep. Uh, it's playing through March 3rd, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, Michael, you got down to tit- uh, to NYU to see Titanic uh, playing there. Is that at Steinhardt? Or, uh, yes, is playing? this is the Steinhardt uh, program in vocal performance. Mm. Uh, and it's at uh, a brand new theater complex uh, that I don't have written down in front of me at the moment. Oh, oh man! Uh, the Iris Cantor Theater, Iris, I R I S. Yes, the Iris Cantor Theater. Yeah, and yeah. it's another. I may actually, I may have mentioned before. Uh, there, are, mm-hmm. there are. Um, I think at least two different places now with that name on it. So, uh, oh. <laughs> uh, so be careful when you're when you're going. It's like Peter J. Sharp, except not so bad. <laughs> so where, where exactly is it? What's the actual address? It's on uh, it's on Houston. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's right on Houston right. Uh, near Green Street. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, I guess maybe the first thing I want to say about this production is that it had a 32 piece wow. orchestra mm. wow. in an actual orchestra pit 
Wow. In this beautiful brand new theater in this mm. in this complex. So um I'm glad we we found out about this. I have a a, a, a fr- bunch of friends and I try to go see uh you know college productions uh cuz they tend to do shows that we love and they tend to have full orchestras and they often have excellent talent and so um we found out about this but uh, it can sometimes be hard to find out about them because i believe they have uh constraints on their advertising especially if the school is in manhattan uh so uh but anyway we did find out about it and Thank God, because it really was just absolutely fantastic. This show, interestingly, was directed by Ted Sperling, but he did not conduct it, and he was not the music director. That was Dr. Justin John Moniz. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, we know that Ted has directed and conducted and been musical director for several shows for the Master Voices, and I guess before it, that, when it was called the Collegiate Chorale, but I don't know if he's ever directed something that he hasn't also musical directed until now. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that came about, but but it was very, very, very well done, and it was absolute heaven to hear that orchestra. Um, but also happy to report really, really great talent on stage from these young people, these young students there, and the. Um, this program and vocal performance of Steinhardt. So this was not the Tisch School. This is the Steinhardt School at NYU. Um, Connor Burns as Andrews. I would, I would certainly sing aloud. Evan Scott Shields as Harold Bride. Uh, Joshua Vreeland as Barrett was maybe not a hundred percent perfectly cast in terms of type, but his voice was so beautiful that it really. You know, it really did not matter at all. And I'm sure that's why he was cast. That is absolutely one of the best roles in the show. And he did a wonderful, amazing job of it. Um, Joe Kotz, K-O-T-Z-E, as Captain Smith. Colin Ellsbury as J. Bruce Ismay, uh, the villain. Um, uh, This production restored if that's the word for it the 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 duet um between one of the secondary couples charles clark and caroline neville uh played by matthew frampton and andrea marie bush um that song was cut from the original broadway production for whatever reason uh that's when that when the couple was played by judy blazer and don stevenson mm-hmm. um and uh but it seems to have come back into every production of titanic that i've seen recently uh i mean not that i've seen that many but i have seen a few um so i think that that song is back for good um who else did i want to single out oh well absolutely um sydney hoel h-o-e-l as alice bean which was the victoria clark role uh and another one of the the best roles in the show uh not to review re-review the show itself at this point in time but it is it does strike me uh has always struck me that um titanic um is really good for the most part but it starts to kind of fall apart at the end towards the end sort of when the ship starts to sink um spoiler excuse me um (laughs) yeah um (laughs) 
And uh, actually, one of the people I went with blamed the book uh, by Peter Stone, which not to get into it, but um, I think many of us have tremendous respect for Peter Stone for things he wrote earlier in his career. But it does seem that in the latter part of it that he started to maybe maybe lose uh, his abilities somewhat, uh, as demonstrated in this show, and also his rewrite of Annie Get Your Gun, and uh, maybe a few other things. So um, I did feel that again when watching this. And also, I think that some of the best songs in the show, some of the greatest songs, are front-loaded, including certainly the that whole opening sequence climaxing with that magnificent anthem, Godspeed Titanic, but also the Stoker song, uh, which I mentioned, Barrett's uh, Stoker song, is phenomenal. And that duet he does with Harold Bride, uh, where they're sending the telegraph messages, um, really, really wonderful, fantastic stuff in Titanic, which helps you um, sail over <laughs> the, um, the, more, the more rough parts of it so i was delighted that we went and uh as we've mentioned before you will get another opportunity to see titanic if you miss this one because encores is going to be doing it quite soon city center encores um so uh it really does seem as i mentioned last week i think that it's a more yeston time <laughs> uh it's his time uh, um Composer Lyricist Maury Yeston with that and uh, Nine going to be done at the Kennedy Center and uh, these shows being done at 54 Below, etc. So um, always happy to celebrate Maury Yeston. All right. So uh, that was Titanic at NYU's Irish Cantor Theater, part of the Steinhardt School uh, production. It, it ran last week, February 9th to the February 12th, so you missed it. But the Encores is coming up. And uh, let's see when the date of Encores. Do you know it off the top of your head? Yeah, and while you're looking for that, one other thing I wanted to mention is, um, not to harp on it, but for some strange reason, uh, Peter Stone rewrote history, and he has Barrett, the stoker, uh, go down with the ship, which is not what happened. Um, and it, it's so weird because there's a perfect moment uh, for him to do what he actually did because somebody, one of the officers turns to him and says, can you row uh, a lifeboat? And he says, I don't know, sir. I've never done it. And at that point, the officer turns to another uh like third class passenger and says, can, can you do it? And he volunteers and he, he gets saved, but that's not what happened. Barrett actually survived and gave testimony at the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the inquiry, what do you call those? Uh, the, 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 <clears throat> that sounds right to me. Yeah. Where they, yeah. Where they looked into, into the, the tragedy and tried to determine what had happened. Um, I guess maybe he decided to kill him because he felt the audience had identified with him and bonded with him so much that it would be very moving to uh, have him die. But it's just, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many other characters who do die <laughs> uh, that I don't I don't think that was necessary. And I always wonder if I always expect or hope maybe that some production will change that back. Uh, I wonder if we'll ever see that uh, Maybe on at encores, but I I doubt it. <laughs> and I I fear again that if uh, 
Titanic gets revived on Broadway, you, you, you will have people that complain it's not like the movie. Absolutely. <laughs> so, as happened the first time around. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Which, and they opened it the, the, almost like the same time. That yeah. was so yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. weird. Mm. Uh, so the encore production is June 11th to the 23rd, 15 performances. So, uh, you know, as that date gets closer and closer, there'll be less and less of those tickets. So, uh, don't, don't say that we didn't tell you when, because, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I'd imagine that neat, uh, most of the theatrical community in New York is dying to see Titanic again. Yep. All right. So next up, uh, Peter, you got over to Second Stage's uh, Off-Broadway Theater, the Tony Kaiser, to see uh, the Apiary. So tell us about this. Um, this, <clears throat> this is a bit of a strange play. Um, what is very important to note, and I, I will admit I did not note it, um, is that the play takes 20, place 22 years in the future. And so therefore, we're in 2046. So uh, what's happened in all that period of time? Well, um, it seems that uh, the ecosystem is really breaking down. And as a result, we've got to keep those bees alive under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. That must happen. We don't keep the bees alive. Uh, we're all going to succumb to God knows what. What they do find is that one way to keep the bees alive is to have them feed on corpses. And (laughs) given that there's so much overpopulation in the world and so many sick people, so many terminally ill people, maybe it's a good idea to actually have these people come in and say, well, you know, I'm all done. You know, I have nothing to look forward to. And um, why don't you just take me and feed me to the bees? Uh, Of course, in a situation like this, there may be some people who aren't as willing to do it as others, but uh, that could be a problem as well. One of the weirdest things about this show, if that doesn't sound weird enough, is the fact that you know how people when people tend with bees, they um, wear these um, headpieces uh, that have netting so they can see through, but they won't get stung. The entire stage, um, well, that's not true. Most of the stage has netting in front of it. So what you're looking through is people through the netting. I want to bring that up because that's something that I've only seen once before, ironically enough, in a play in Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, many, many years ago that had to do with sterility. And um, it, it's, it would seem to be off-putting. I will say that this is far more skillful than when I saw at Cheltenham. And it will, if when you sit down, you see that netting and say, oh, my God, are they really going to keep that up the whole show? It's very apparent that they are. It looks very solid. Um, <clears throat> you don't expect it to lift at all or uh, separate. So it's it's not going to be as worrisome as it would seem to be. There are seams played in front of it, a few in front of it here and there. But um, anyway, there is a conflict, um, certainly with uh, the boss who is very, 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 very strident, Taylor Schilling. That's the character. That is not a criticism of the actress or Kate Wariski's directions. Kate is certainly one of our greatest uh, directors, as she's proved time and time and time and time again. 
But anyway, this is that type of boss who shrieks too much, uh, who's much too loud, who's much too definitive, who really believes she has all the answers and that's all there is to it, and she doesn't trust her employees at all. Um, we've all had bosses like that. And, um, and I, ironically, that's going to come up a, a little later as well in, in another show I'm going to talk about. But um, anyway, there she is with um, ruling the roost with two employees who have different ways of looking at things. Um, uh, Pilar and Zora are the other two employees who certainly have a lot to say. Um, they're wonderfully played by Carmen M. Hurley and April Mathis. But what you also have is um, a character called Dancer, and Dancer represents the bees. So you actually have her dancing around representing the bees who are feeding on uh, people. So um, it's it's a very weird play, no question. Um, any play that takes place in the future has the runs the risk of being weird. Um, nobody knows what's really going to happen. Uh, you have to really be very, very smart to write a play about the future, and you may fail because who knows? But all things considered, um, this is a fascinating evening in the theater. It may not be totally successful, but um, <clears throat> to most people, I don't think it will be. But if you decide to go with it, you will be rewarded. And it is the first-class production, so at least that. Okay. Uh so that will be playing through, I just had it here, March 3rd, and it's at the uh, second stage, uh, Tony Kaiser Theater, uh, one of the many stages of second stage. <laughs> so uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you headed over to Birdland to see our friend Melissa Errico in a Manhattan Valentine. So uh, tell us about this. Yeah, I uh, I went last night. It was in the Birdland Theater, the uh, downstairs, not the uh, not the upstairs space. And this was in celebration of Melissa's new album called Sondheim in the City. Uh, but I guess she also gave it that Valentine subtitle because of when when the show was happening, uh, and it was really really fantastic. She looked incredibly beautiful, and if you don't believe me, I sent a photo that I took, and we'll put it, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, she always looks gorgeous. Um, Ted Firth was her musical director, and she had a, a wonderful bass player and drummer, and. Uh, it was a fascinating, very full program, uh, almost 90 minutes, the show, in length, because as Melissa herself joked, she tends to go on in her patter. <laughs> uh, but it's so uh, informative and delightful that uh, I, I, I really don't think people are going to object to that. Um, the program was terrific, the arrangements and the song choices, and it began and ended with two real, real rarities. The first song she sang was called Dawn, D-A-W-N, from the unproduced film Singing Out Loud. Wow. <laughs> and if you don't if you don't know what that is, uh here's a little bit uh that Bruce Kimmel wrote 
on Sondheim.com, singing out loud an original film musical with a score by Sondheim and a screenplay by William Goldman was written for Rob Reiner to direct, but remains as of now unfilmed. The plot revolves around a lady star producer who is making a musical film which is not working. Needing help, she calls in her former lover, who is also the man who discovered her and is now a, a famous director. Uh, and then it goes goes on and on but then it talks about this particular song in the film the song dawn would have begun with its pop songwriter playing the piano and explaining different scenarios for the song and how they could be shot each scenario would then be shown thus illuminating the creative process of how films work and how writers picture scenes in their heads the song is very complex visual and fragmented so that was the opener. And I, I really appreciate Melissa giving us an opportunity to hear that. Um, then the rest of the program, uh, a lot of familiar stuff, but uh, in, in wonderful arrangements and performed so beautifully by Melissa, another hundred people from company opening doors. Uh, and what more do I need from merrily? We roll along at Saturday night, take me to the world from evening primrose can that boy Foxtrot, uh, one of the songs that was cut from Follies and replaced by uh, I'm Still Here. Uh, anyone Can Whistle title song. Everybody says don't from Anyone Can Whistle. Good Thing Going from Mer Merrily We Roll Along. Broadway Baby from Follies. Uptown Downtown, another cut song from Follies, which was replaced by the saga, the saga of Lucy and Jesse, the story of Lucy and Jesse. Story. Yeah. story <laughs> yeah um and uh both of those songs by the way both of those cut songs ended up in marry me a little uh that review that not not really review that sondheim jukebox music or what would you call yeah. <laughs> marry me a little yeah um uh it wasn't meant to happen uh cut from merrily uh, from from marry me a little uh so so does that mean it was written expressly for marry me a little no, as a new no, song no, no. Oh, well, uh, enlighten us. <laughs> I wish I could. But oh. I know it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I know it wasn't written for. Um, nothing was written for "Marry Me a Little." It was all existing songs. Well, that's what I thought. But I thought maybe this one was like maybe he had agreed to write one new song. Sure, that's a very good assumption. Um, it didn't happen that way. But I, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised if that did happen with "Marry Me a Little." Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, it wasn't meant to happen is the title. If Melissa mentioned what it was originally written for, I, I missed it. Um, the Little Things You Do Together from Company, Sorry Grateful from Company, Being Alive from Company. And the closer was another real rarity, a song that Sondheim wrote when he was in college for a musical that was <laughs> called Climb High. Mm -hmm. And the title of the song is Nice Town But, which fit in well with uh, the theme of both her album and this show, because there, there are so many New York-centric songs. So it was just a great, great evening, and uh, uh, I will always go see and hear Melissa Errico in anything she does. Okay, so... Uh... I, it looks like from the Birdland website, there's another performance tonight. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's the last Melissa, one. Yeah, but Melissa has a full schedule 
on her website, and I've got a link to there of all the other places you can see her around uh, the U.S. and the world. She is uh, traveling in support of her album. She's great. All right. So uh, next up, uh, Peter, you saw the Warrior Sisters of Wu at the Pan-Asian Repertory (laughs) Theater. So tell us about this. Yeah, this is about uh, two sisters who many people may know from, from Dynasty Warriors, which is a video game. And they've really um, <laughs> become very, very popular as a result of this. <clears throat> it's very odd to see a show about um, Asians in the year 2000 AD and think of an um, African-American musical from the 60s. But I did think of it in this context. When Hallelujah Baby opened in 1967, Walter Kerr said, Arthur Lawrence has given us a lesson in Civics 1, while all of us are studying Civics 6. We've you know, progressed long before. And I dare say that that's one of the problems of Warrior Sisters of Wu, because it deals with a woman who wants to be a swordsman. She wants to fight in the war, and she's not being given the privilege of doing that simply because she's a woman. So we have a lot of issues here involving the fact that why don't women have a chance in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, um, of course, of course, of course, of course, all this is very accurate and right and fair to bring up. <clears throat> But I I dare say it seemed a little too familiar to me as um, a story that we have heard before a lot of times. The playwright also um, uses very contemporary language for a show that takes place in um, 200 AD. For example, you literally hear the expression, that's a no-brainer. So um, I guess that's a way of letting us see that um, things haven't changed much over the years. Um, I dare say things have changed somewhat um, over the years, (laughs) and women certainly have had their chances, maybe not as many as they deserve. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is we certainly have um, a situation where Many women have entered the workplace and have succeeded wonderfully. And um, so so this seemed to me a little trite at this moment in time. Very well performed, though. What's going on here that is different, very different, in fact, is the fact that um, the father of these two women um, is very progressive. A man comes, shows up. He's a distant cousin very effetely played by Din James Stone. Uh, that's the, the intention. Very effete, um, asking for uh, the, older, the older daughter's hand. And usually in situations like this, especially because he claims to be very wealthy, you would think the father would jump at the chance because we get the impression that the father doesn't have that much money. In fact, he might even be thrown out of his home. So, well... The father surprises us in saying, um, gee, I'm, I'm not so sure. Let's ask my daughter what she thinks. And you don't expect this in 200 AD. Um, so it's really quite wonderful. The father doesn't like the distant cousin, and for good reason. He's very cocksure. He really thinks he's the sun and the moon and the stars. And um, <clears throat> But he, he sort of reminds me of Leo in The Little Foxes. Um, in a strange way, because um, that's somebody who doesn't deserve a, a good wife, uh, considering who he is. 
So um, needless to say, the daughter doesn't want any part of this guy whatsoever. Um, she's not particularly interested in any guy, especially the general whom she meets, and she's trying to convince that uh, she should be part of the um, the army. Um, <clears throat> there's a little bit of taming of the shrew here, in the sense that um, there's little Petruchio and um, <laughs> going on. Um, which is which is very effective actually to see that um and 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 Kate Katharina um th- you will be reminded of that especially with the other daughter <clears throat> who seems to be a bit of have a bit of Bianca in her it isn't quite established the way that it is in Shakespeare that the older daughter must get married before the uh, younger daughter can that is not an issue at all um she has her own agenda and she has her own bow and it seems like they're getting along very well but um but I have to say that um sitting there at seven o'clock last night, which is one of the reasons why I missed the uh, dimming of, of or, or the explosion of lights for cheetah Rivera <laughs> um i I have to say that all this territory seemed terribly familiar to me, uh, and um, I do believe that um, I, I too, along with much of the audience, um, feels that I've, I've gone to C- Civics 6 while they're still at Civics 1. All right. So that is uh, Warrior Sisters of Wu at the uh, Pan-Asian Repertory Theater. It's uh, playing through March 3rd, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, both Peter and Michael got to see uh, Debbie Gravitt and David Lawrence in A Toast to Stephen <clears throat> Eady. So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Well, no, actually, to clarify, A Toast to Stephen Eady is uh, the name of a show that they are going to be doing at Zankel Hall at Carnegie uh-huh. Hall on, on Monday, March 18th. Uh, but what Peter and I attended on Valentine's Day was a uh, a press reception uh, to mark the fact that the Lawrence Family Foundation, as in Steve Lawrence uh, uh, and Edie Gourmet um, and their family, uh, have given an endowment gift to C- Carnegie Hall, uh, a place where Steve and Edie, that legendary uh, performing duo and husband and wife, uh, performed on more than one occasion to great great success um and this event was held at uh not in carnegie hall but it is part of the complex in one of the uh rooms in the education uh wing there uh and david lawrence was on hand and so was debbie gravitt and some other notables um uh what uh peter what what else can we say about the, this event well <clears throat> when i'm i i have seen uh, both of these uh, people do Golden Rainbow at 54 Below. Do you go to that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we know that they uh, have the goods to uh, to be Stephen Eady. Uh, certainly, uh, he comes from the legacy of Stephen Eady, and, um, but, uh, but she has always reminded um, so many people of Eady Gourmet. Doug Cohen even wrote a show uh, in which um, she essentially – plays Edie Gourmet. It's hmm. it's it's um the big time which she wrote with Douglas Carter Bean. Um so she does have the and in fact, is it the um the movie with Nathan Lane um about Jacqueline Suzanne, isn't she great? Yeah. I believe 
Debbie appears with that as as Edie Gourmet for a couple <laughs> of minutes. I, that I'm, I may have the wrong movie, but I don't think I do. Um, so she does have that style and she does have that sass and she she really does resemble her and, and but the thing is debbie gravitt i am so glad that she has a tony um because she is a magnificent performer uh the type of show that she would uh, thrive in um such as jerome robbins broadway which after all was a retrospective of famous musicals of yore um that there weren't that many that were being produced at that time that um that she would immediately come to mind. Mm. So it's very nice that um, she does have her Tony for uh, that retrospective. And it's really going to be nice to see her do this. They're, they're going to be terrific. And frankly, I was surprised to hear that it was Ankle Hall. I thought they were going to be doing it in Carnegie Hall. And I dare say that if they were to do it in Carnegie Hall, <laughs> she'd be able to fill up that room. Uh, her voice would fill up that room because, boy, does she have a powerful voice. And it's really quite wonderful to uh, hear her examine it. Michael, I'm, I, I'm substantially older than you. So um, I guess you were too young for Golden Rainbow, or did you go? I'm talking about originally in 68. Well, I could have seen it, but I would have been like 10. Uh-huh. And I, and I did not see it. Uh-huh. I remember uh, I, I have a clear memory of um, sitting at my parents' house, and they had some company over, some relatives, and a, a bunch of people were talking. And one of the women said... She said, you know, I, I don't know how it came up. She said, I, I never really had I never really had that much respect for Stephen Edie until I saw them in a show called Golden Rainbow. Huh. And she said they were just fantastic. <laughs> and how nice. Stuck in my head. But yeah, Debbie, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the quality of her voice is is very, very similar to Edie's. They both have um very wide ranges and they can they can really belt way up high uh in a almost a uh a gashry kind of a sound but also sing you know beautifully uh lyrically and, and very softly and croon a ballad as as gorgeously as anyone else and steve um, um excuse me david lawrence as you mentioned uh, you know just genetically mm. has um the voice and style of his dad um so it really is quite something to see them both uh performing as steve and edie and i i'm very much looking forward to that concert on march 18th well, while I was old enough to see Golden Rainbow, um, I can't say that I did originally because um, it tried mm. out in Philadelphia. I was living in Boston, and I didn't get to New York that often in those days. So so as a result, I did not see it. Um, but uh, I will say this. Walter Marks, who wrote the score, really knew how to write for those two people. Those songs are perfect for Stephen Eady. And I urge you to get the cast album um, and, and hear exactly how right those songs were for Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, who did a number of show songs in their time, no question. Steve Lawrence did Mama a Rainbow, Edie Gourmet's um, If He Walked Into My Life, and um, mm. Do I Hear a Waltz are quintessential recordings. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so they, while they only appeared together on Broadway once, and he appeared once in What Makes Sammy Run, the fact remains is they certainly did a number of show songs, a number of albums with show songs in their time. She even did a song from A Mother's Kisses, a show that closed in Baltimore. Hmm. 
All right. So as uh, Michael mentioned, uh, Toast to Stephen Eady at the Zankel Carnegie uh, Hall at Carnegie Hall is coming up on March 18th. I'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can check that out. Um, Michael, Peter, question for you to mm-hmm. uh, do you uh, do you feel like the, the, the theater culture that we have in the U.S. is somewhat imported from Great Britain? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, Michael. Certainly... Yeah. Well, when you say the theater culture, can you be a little more specific? I mean... Well, sure. I mean, you know, the the, the culture in Great Britain, um, not only for theater but for everything, uh, has, has a long culture of queuing up. Uh, ah. and, and the British, they love to queue. Ah. They love to queue, and I think that that might play somewhat into a, mm. a topic that we wanted to talk about. So, Michael, take it away. Well, thank you for that segue. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if uh, if that's the origin, but yes, I was headed to actually it happened when I was headed to a matinee performance of Once Upon a Mattress a couple of weeks ago. And I cut through the uh, the breezeway at the where the, where the Gershwin and uh, and Circle in the Square theaters are and fully 45 minutes before the matinee of Wicked was scheduled to begin. I saw literally hundreds and hundreds of people in a long snaking line in that breezeway waiting to get in. In And on that particular day, it was quite cold out. And so I almost walked up to someone and said, why are you here? <laughs> why are you here so early? But I, I didn't do that because I didn't know yeah, how they would react. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I then uh, just brought this up to a bunch of theater friends uh, when we were having dinner a few nights later and i asked them if any of them could have any possible explanation for this and one of them told me that when these people order tickets and get uh email confirmations that they are instructed to be at the theater 45 minutes beforehand so if that's true um i think that's terrible especially in the winter months i there's obviously no need for it no theater i know of opens earlier than half hour before uh, although um parenthetically that's not going to be the case with the production of cabaret that's about to open because they're yeah. going to have a whole um, mm-hmm. pre-show, pre-show kind of thing yeah but uh that's that's the only except single exception i can think of um i i can't imagine why people do why why ticket sellers and theaters do this and i also said to my friends all right but so if people if people are taken in by this and and they and like sheep they show up 45 minutes beforehand in the cold and then have to stand there uh you know for about half an hour or more um why do they keep doing it (laughs) you know thereafter and uh and i you know nobody had an answer for that but i guess there are always new people uh who haven't had the experience i you would think that gradually uh it would become common knowledge that there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to get to a theater 45 minutes beforehand and stand in a line when you could be having you know food or a drink somewhere in a nice warm restaurant or so, or I, just leave your hotel room later you know <laughs> uh, let me interrupt you for a second it, because i I did see Wicked uh, coming up, I, I guess, about a year ago or a little mm-hmm. bit less than a year ago. I did see Wicked um, with a school trip, my daughter's school, uh, mm-hmm. and 
there were, you know, a hundred or more people that were taking two buses from Long Island to the city. And they did queue up at, at the Gershwin an hour before. I, I think, I think that they couldn't really, you know, move a group of that size into a, a restaurant or things like that. And these are people that don't want to get stuck in traffic and miss the beginning of it. So I, I don't know if maybe in a large, for larger groups, I could see that as being an issue, but for smaller group, smaller groups, I can agree. Yeah. Yeah. And actually uh, uh, years ago, I, I had asked someone, <laughs> I think it was at Phantom, uh, and I asked someone and he said exactly what you said. He said, well, we, we just wanted to, you know, keep all the kids together and get and get them, uh, you know, make sure that they were all ready here and ready to go in. But uh, but there again, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it might be difficult to break them up into smaller groups and, and go to to uh, merchandise shops or restaurants or whatever. Uh, so I guess in that sense, it, it makes it makes sense. And, you know, if they, if they, if the bus arrives earlier than they thought, you know, uh, what else are they going to do? But, mm. but that's only a, still a, you know, a, a percentage of the hundreds and hundreds of people who line up uh, so, so early in front of the theater. So I hope, uh, I mean, consider this a public service announcement that, <laughs> uh, that, you know, there, there is no reason uh, unless perhaps you're in a huge group and you want to keep everyone together. Uh, but even then, if you can think of some, something else to do um, uh, rather than just wait in the cold for 45 minutes or more. You know, uh, as long as, not everybody shows up at uh, two minutes after the hour, as I like to do, so I can slip into the theater and sit down and it starts. <laughs> uh, because then if everybody shows up at two minutes after the hour, then, you know, we probably won't start till 20 after. <laughs> right. That is, yes, that would be the opposite end of the spectrum. And, and that would not be wise either. <laughs> but I don't think any of, of these people are going to do that. <laughs> no, that's true. All right. So that wraps it up for this week. Uh, listeners have asked about O'Mary. We haven't reviewed O'Mary yet. Peter's going to see it uh, today, I think, Peter. Yeah, yeah, today. Exactly. So we'll talk about O'Mary next week. Uh, one of the hot off-Broadway tickets happening right now. So before we get on to our brain teaser and our musical moments... I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. One of them is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. Uh, and if you subscribe there, you'll be able to support Broadway Radio and all our other shows, plus get our stuff early and get extra content that is not available to the general public. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? A female character in a 20th century Tony-winning musical could be described as deft, intelligent, musically literate, and abstemious. Who is she? Well, I really outsmarted myself on this one. 
<laughs> when I came up with it, I chuckled in delight because I thought I was being <laughs> so clever. But Tony Janicki, J. Aubrey Jones, Sean Logan, Juliet Green, Brigadude, Fred Abramowitz, and Ingrid Gamberman all gave five answers, fine answers to the question. Most notably, Marion the Librarian and Maria soon-to-be Von Trapp. Even Ethel Toffelmeyer from The Music Man and Violet from Wonderful Town got mentioned. Yes, I have to agree that those characters and more whom people chose were deft, intelligent, and musically literate. As for abstemious, well, I goofed on that one, too, because I thought it meant someone who doesn't partake of liquor. Actually, there's more to it than that, as a Google search will inform you. But I'm not giving up. I'm sure that many of the above or others can figure out what's on my mind by refining the question. So let's semi-repeat it for this week. But because I didn't make it clear or specific enough, here's a clearer version. So, a female character in a Tony-winning musical that opened in the 60s could be described as a teetotaler, deft, someone who doesn't buy or bum cigarettes off anyone, (laughs) intelligent, and musically literate, with an emphasis on the word literate. Remember, it opened in the 1960s which means that it could only be one of nine shows because the Tony winners of 1960, The Sound of Music and Fiorello, opened within a week of each other in 1959. So, who is she? And in what musical does she appear? I think these are the best odds I've ever had. You know, one in nine. I have a one in nine chance of, That's right. of getting this correct for the first time in 15, 17 years or whatever. So if you have an answer for this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moments? Well, I went to the Internet to... Uh find some Melissa Erico material and I found on YouTube two uh, music videos that she did two Sondheim songs. Uh, so our opener, uh, uh, and by the way, we'll, we'll include the, the audio and as well as the links to the videos in the show notes. Uh, our, our opener is What More Do I Need from Saturday Night? And the closer is Good Thing Going from Merrily We Roll Along. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. So what is the... What is the and while it's going along, you take for granted some love will wear away. We took for granted a lot. But still I say It could have kept on growing Instead of just kept on We had a good thing going
while it's going along. You take for granted some love will wear away. 